So hello and welcome to the RPG Academy's Show and Tell. Show and Tell is the show where we like to bring on cool guests to talk about something cool that they're working on. And today's cool guest is none other than Federico Sanz of Arocana Media. And the game we're going to be talking about is Zypher. I'm super excited to talk about Zypher because unlike other interviews where I feel like I have a lot of information, people will like, the games are like about to launch. They've sent me press kits, all this other kind of stuff. I don't have any of that. All I have is just like years of Fed's obscure, mysterious posting about this game. And I'm very excited to talk about it. So mm-hmm. Fed, uh, welcome. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me again. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I, we were kind of we were kind of joking. I, I don't know if you've like done this intentionally, but I I want to say you have because it's been it's it's cool. It's made me want the game more. So. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird because it's like I just post it because like I I'm like I don't know I I'm 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 binge sort of like uh, illustrating for like four or five hours and I, I get something cool and I'm like oh my god I want to show this. It, it's it's just like impulse. Nice. It's not planned this is going to be a little bit different all right, as far as interviews go because there's so much about this game that I want to talk to. And I just, I really do, uh, listeners, I really do like talking to to Fed about different things. So I, I'm just going to be all over the place. So I, I you said something that's pretty interesting. So hold on. You just will draw for like four to five hours? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the one part of the whole game design uh, sort of like universe that I can just sit down every day for hours on end and, and just do it. I just cannot imagine just focusing for that long. That's really fun. <laughs> uh, I believe it. All right. So I guess before we really get rolling, uh, we so we've had you on the show a few times, um, uh, and mostly to talk about Nibiru. All right. So this is this is different. So just can you give us like the brief snapshot then for anyone who may not know who's Federico Sons? Yeah, I'm basically an Argentinian games designer. Uh, I moved out of Argentina uh, when I was 22 uh, to London. Uh, And I was in London for about five, six years, um, most of the time working at Medifius Entertainment. I, like, as soon as I landed, I started working on my own game and get involved with, like, the community in London, going to clubs and playtesting my stuff. And um, I started working uh, at that big sort of, like, uh, games company. And eventually right through like the corona crisis and all of the world sort of like burning i um left the country and i'm now living in japan um i sort of got into japan right into this like tiny time window where we could actually enter the country kind of like the, the okay. millennium falcon sort of like going out of the <laughs> right as, as it explodes um but uh yeah and now i'm, I'm basically here and i'm still doing this full time uh, so yeah okay just chilling making games yeah mm-hmm. okay that's that's i mean that's super cool uh so all right so the obviously people know i'm a fan of nibiru all right so and then you have zypher and mm-hmm. just kind of looking at what you've posted on social media the art you've shared the discord stuff you've shared in your discord it's definitely it's a different it's a very different game all right so but I, you're, you're definitely, you've posted, you share a few themes, but can you give us then, what is the, what's the elevator pitch for Zephyr? So Zephyr is basically... Oh, Zephyr. I've been saying it wrong. That you need matter. to correct me on these things. doesn't matter. Zephyr. I remember, like, I think my first time I talked to you was like, I was pronouncing Nibiru wrong. I'm but, so used anyway. to uh, all of that. Cause, like, <laughs> Nibiru has so many, like, uh, names that are just not easy to... <laughs> You know, uh, but whatever. Um, Zever is basically an anarchist game of fleeting identities. It is a game that is essentially about two things, two uh, thematic axes, as I like to tell them, which are um, feelings and identity and debt and obligation. So in the same way as like Nibiru had like, sort of like the themes of nature and artificiality and memories and identity, this has those axes. And it's basically a high fantasy game uh, set in this living continent that is on a relentless march along endless salt flats. Uh, it's uh, it's pretty strange from the onset. 
uh, let's say. Okay. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack. All right. So I, I got two things from there. All right. So I, I, obviously I want to talk about like your your themes here, but I also just want to talk about this world because I feel like you make cool worlds. Uh, the Hold on. So it's a, it's a creature. It's moving through moving through salt flats. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, does the game play take place on the creature or on the creature? Char- yeah. Okay. So characters aren't venturing out into the salt flats. No, they're not. Okay. So this is okay. So all right. So hold on. We've got some, so Nibiru, isolated uh, satellite thing, and then this game, isolated creature. Is that like a? Is that intentional? I do like the idea of like getting my settings sort of like, you know, with a, within a limited space because it it makes it it helps me sort of like focus on what's inside and and we've talked about like the sort of like the more immediate the more intimate parts of setting and uh, like sort of like the everyday stuff the stuff that is mm-hmm. ground level and we're like you know the stuff that the player characters interact with directly. And getting sort of like a limited, sort of like very defined space for a setting, sort of like helps out with that. Yeah, I feel like as a game master, it really helps me too. Like, I don't feel like I have to expand upon what the mm-hmm. designer has really made. I feel very, it just, it makes me feel cozy in the sense that like, when I'm going to run the game, I feel very confident in what I'm going to present at the table. Okay, mm-hmm. so I dig that. But so, all right, so there's, can you just talk about this world? Like, can yes. you like just just go? Like, what is this world about? Because it it looks cool. It's different. What's going on? So the biggest sort of like sort of mindfuck kind of thing uh, with, with this world is that um, uh, the creature, the continent, Ophoi is called, um, is basically made out of feelings. Uh, feelings in Zephyr are basically like substance. That you can find feelings in liquid form, in gas form, in concrete solid state. Uh, they can crystallize. Uh, you can see mountains made of fury and rivers of like pure sorrow and stuff. And they sort of like merge and, and they mix and, and turn into different sort of like forms. In, in the way that we see the world, it could be, I don't know, it's, it's like if you could take a look at a valley on Earth and say, okay, everything is made of feelings because feelings have that substance sort of like matter kind of thing. Um, the interesting thing is that Ophoi, the, the creature, um, it basically has so like four lungs. And within these lungs are four colors, four different colors of the zephyr, which are cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. That is the zephyr. The zephyr are those four colors. The idea is that those four colors are feelings, are the feelings of the continent. Um, which of course we're humans and we, we don't understand what those feelings mean. What, what is yellow mean? What does like magenta mean? What does cyan mean? But when they combine, they create the feelings that we do know. So there's a combination, for example, yellow, magenta, and cyan that gives you fury. And the black, yellow, and magenta gives you, I don't know, sorrow, for example, or fear. The idea is that as those feelings combine and they shape sort of like the landscape of this creature, um, they also come to be part of what makes the characters themselves, the living beings of the world. Uh, so there's that metaphysics of feeling kind of baked into the game. Okay, so the so it, the these these feelings then these this like these resource is it coming from the creature then? Yes, it's it's coming from the creature. Uh, the cool thing about the game is that um, whenever someone comes up with like this really wild sort of like what the hell is this uh, concept, yeah. like it's hard to translate that and, and to have that be in the sort of like audience's head. The thing with Nibiru is that that with Nibiru with Zephyr is that it doesn't use dice; it uses the very tokens of that color. It uses the Zephyr as a currency all the time, so okay. that's always in, on on the players' minds. You have basically four color tokens, cyan, yellow, magenta, and black. And that is used for everything in the game. So if I go to, you know, uh, jump over a hole mm-hmm. or something or talk to somebody because I would like to get some fish or yeah. something, I'm using the tokens in order to do task six, resolution. Try to 
Okay, to try to succeed then. Okay, so I guess then that loop then is, uh, so so you spend these tokens, I guess. So then what are the characters doing to, how do you get more tokens then in the game? Uh, well, it's interesting because like, uh, essentially the tokens that the players will handle them uh, are the composition, the constitution of their characters. So their characters okay. uh, are basically made of between one and eight tokens. Um, and you have those tokens in your on your player sh- uh, character sheet all the time. Um, and for example, if you're going to do like a, a test, for example, jumping over like a ledge or something, uh, you take a number between one to three tokens um, in secret. Uh, the narrator does the same. You reveal them. And if you have a different amount to the narrator, you succeed. If you have the same, you fail. You understand? Oh, this is interesting. This is like blind betting. It's like blind okay. betting. And of course, okay. if, you, if you have like a bonus to something, you do one to four instead of one to three, for example. Uh, okay. So you have more chances of getting a different number. Interesting. So then my next question then is, so the, because the, the, the different colors, they represent different uh, feelings and emotions. Mm-hmm. The so let's so I, let's use the, the same example of jumping over something. So does it matter then, like what emotions I'm using to accomplish this task? Yes, it definitely matters. Um, so what was is going to happen is that, of course, like in, in that example, for example, you, you're not spending tokens, but um, yeah. in a manner very reminiscent of what Nibiru has, you do get to whenever you're doing like a task spend tokens instead of just like doing the the task resolution thing to establish a sentimental bond a sentimental bond that basically pushes you through uh achieving success at that and to do that sort of like emotional bond for example let's say that the ledge that you're jumping is you're doing it because you're chasing like uh your antagonist and the reason why you're chasing the antagonist is because they killed your brother or something like that well you have like a really strong bond of like fury towards this person. So instead of doing the task resolution thing, you're going to get the token combination of CYMK uh, color that gives you fury. And you're spending that combination of color tokens and establishing a new bond of fury towards that guy. So okay, any action I mean, that's it, sort of like, yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I dig that. Like uh, the, yeah, I like things that. Yes, there is some sense of, uh, there is some sense of randomness involved with how you're 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 trying to, to make sure you don't have the same number of tokens as mm-hmm. the GM. But I, I like this because I feel like it's gonna just let the story do what everybody wants it to do mm-hmm. at the table, which is cool. So uh, so CMYK. All right the uh that so so all right so we got all of our mechanics talk out of the way that sounds awesome so cmyk uh all right this i was <laughs> some of the pictures that you posted on twitter i saw all right so now that you say this now this is making sense because i saw these these like little dots of cmyk and it looked very it reminded me very much of something that i would send to like a printer for like a print proof or something like that and it popped on the because a lot of times you use at least on the pages i've seen very monochrome colors Mm -hmm. and so having these very bright colors there was just super cool all right so i don't know why i'm saying this right now i just i just think it's a cool design choice Mm -hmm. so i guess uh, what was the inspiration why why cmyk any well, CMYK deep is, meaning there? Uh, I mean, CMYK is essentially the, uh, the colors that you use when you print uh, in, in the industry. Mm-hmm. It's the colors that you have to get used to using. Um, but also I wanted to, if I was doing illustrations, I was thinking about this world and I was like, oh my God, does this mean that I have to do some like really wacky color stuff whenever I paint like a mountain or a river? And, and I was like, nah, that that. That doesn't sound right. Like maybe I could do it at some point, but generally I just want to like, you know, work with like sort of like normal colors in a way. And I was like, well, if the whole world is based in CMYK, I can combine those and generate anything uh, I want. So essentially, imagine if you saw the normal world as it is just with like CMYK colors 
probably a very trained eye would notice a difference. Um, mm -hmm. But um, yeah, that's basically sort of like the reasoning. Um, and okay. CMYK was sort of like um, easy to translate when I started delving into color theory and I started looking into which color combinations combine to make these feelings, make these other colors and how are those colors associated to feelings and sort of like determining that four colors seemed uh, very uh, usable, let's say. Okay. Plus it looks cool. And let's, uh, I don't want to discount like just looking cool. I love stuff that just looks cool. So, all right. The, the, the world itself. So the characters that dwell within the world mm -hmm. are the wind folk. Yeah. They're the wind. So who are, who are the, who are the wind folk? So the wind folk are basically um, a group of people uh, that live in uh, the mountains uh, in a forest, sort of like uh, near the edge, let's say, of the of the continent. If the if the continent, like the back of this creature, is like a huge continent, uh, rather than being in the center, they're more towards the periphery uh, of the continent. And uh, these people are well; they're made of sephir, uh, so they have a different biology to human beings. Um, they have a different way in which they are born. They're born uh, in very particular moments in a voice history when there's basically something called a maelstrom, um, which is essentially a moment in which the continent size and all of the colors of the zephyrs are like pour into the world. So they combine and they create this sort of like... Uh, tsunami of, of life that that starts to like pour into the, the world because all of these colors are combining and they're creating life forms as they roll most of these life life forms are fleeting and they just burst and do not survive anything but some do sort of like stick around enough and in certain ways they become solid enough to to survive for longer um, so the wind folk are this group of people that inhabit the mountains and they have a whole ritual made to actually perpetuate their uh, sort of like species, let's say. Um, and they live in small communities that have a certain type of organization. Um, and at some point in their life, they reach adulthood uh, and they embark on a journey. And this journey technically is um, about their start of their adult life. Uh, it's about taking in obligations from other members of the community. Um, obligations are like a really big part of the uh, of the game, which is basically it's sort of like the way in which you get the stuff that you want. So like the the, the skills, the technology, the the, the tools uh, for your adventure, but it's also the way in which players sort of like build the story structure. It's really interesting because okay. It's like it starts off when this group of people are about to embark on this uh, sort of like adventure and they take in obligations. And you have a system of points in which uh, say that you want to become a carpenter when you come back to your community after the journey uh, and you want to learn how to hunt. So all of that stuff, uh, all of the technologies, the skills, the, the items have a cost. Uh, in like a set number of points that we can talk about later. Um, and to counter that, to sort of like balance the equation, uh, the players get to build an adventure. So they get to, for example, go through a series of steps that are like, okay, how long is this journey going to take? And how dangerous is it going to be? And is this going to benefit yourself or the whole community or the entire uh, community of like, um, windfolk across the continent. So you start to add up these uh, sort of like numbers and different assets that you pick to build your adventure and you counter that to the stuff that you want to get at the start of the adventure, sort of like the skills and stuff. So it's pretty interesting because you are essentially setting off the journey with the players having built this like really cool uh, thing where they get the stuff that they start with and they also set the goal of their journey. 
Okay, I like that a lot. It's very much a more collaborative style of mm-hmm. role playing, which is what I'm typically I typically gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. So I guess that is one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about because when you said early on that this is a high fantasy game, uh, it looks very the art you've shared is very fantastical, very different than the real uh, kind of grounded and realism that Nibiru was. Um, mm-hmm. So I have to. When I think high fantasy, I think adventure. I think characters going out into the world, exploring and doing stuff. You kind of explained how those adventures maybe form, but like, could you give us an example of like what would an adventure? I know there's endless possibilities, but what would an adventure look like in Zephyr? Uh, for example, you could have an adventure in which. Uh, there is this huge bridge in a far-off land that needs to be repaired. Um, And essentially, you go there to do that, to help the community in there. And there's a lot of like conflict around the construction of this bridge. Or it could be that there's this huge herd of like really strange bison that are going to arrive at a place and you have to help hunt them down to... Aid like a community that is going through like harsh winter or something like that. Um, it's all about like the these pockets of communities, and the, you also have as like a big sort of like antagonist and a, and a force for like building stories. Uh, the antagonists of the Windfolk, which are the Salt States, which are essentially uh, a, a set of like small kingdoms, let's say that are so like clumped together at the center of the continent, that usually raid the windfolk sort of like region and take captives and they have like a completely different sort of like society uh that is a big thing okay all right so okay so i was wondering like who the antagonists were in the system because i've seen a lot of images for the the windfolk and some different creatures and stuff but i haven't really seen anything so the, the salt states all right just at face value this is very much to me uh the you talking about raiding and stuff. This very much seems to me the themes of colonialism yeah. that are mixed in here. So how much of that is like in the the world of Zephyr that, that you wrote that's going to be presented in the book? Is that like, are the salt states like, is this a, are they actively like going and trying to conquer the wind folk then in the world right now? Yeah, more than trying to conquer, they are essentially taking in captives and sort of like very slowly trying to uh, progress into where the windfolk live. The problem is that the windfolk live in something that um, is, is like, like an actual real world uh, term in anthropology, which is called a shatter zone. A shatter zone is essentially a place that because of its geography and because of its conditions, it's nine possible to um, basically advance through with an army. It's very hard to tax people living in, in, a, in a shatter zone. So that's essentially where the windfolk live. Um, the biggest thing with like the salt states and, and what happens with the windfolk is that the salt states operate on a different moral conception of human relationships. Um, okay. Which is the debt morality essentially they they use the concept of debt and money whereas the windfolk use obligation let's say um and it's a very simple difference it essentially means that when the windfolk the windfolk generally share most things and what they don't share and and they sort of like exchange etc they see it mostly as secondary the material thing and the primary thing being the relationship that gets forged through that uh, so they have this concept of obligation and they operate in a gift economy, um, which is stuff that like is introduced. But the mechanic of obligations is essentially about that, is about reciprocity and how like someone gives you something and you give something in return. And generally what you give in return as a player character in this game um, is like a mission, like a quest, a side quest or something that you're doing for them. Okay, so so we have these like these diametrically opposed debt obligation. All right. So this is one of the things that I wanted to ask you about. So because uh, you are from, you're from Latin America and you've been, you've been all over the world. All right. And you're very open on your, 
your personal Twitter about your your politics and whatnot. So I want to ask you then is what sort of why explore for you? Why explore this idea of debt and obligation? Is this what it, how personal is this for you? Oh, it's extremely personal. <laughs> um, debt is one of those things where like, and, and this is like a huge influence in the book, probably the largest influence in, uh, in to this game is uh, my favorite book, which is a book by David Graver called Debt. Um, uh, 50,000 years of like the, the history of debt. Um, and it talks about debt morality and um how debt morality is is ingrained in our society as of today and for how long it's been like such a big factor for conflict and social conflict along pretty much the entire history uh, of humanity um the big sort of like divide um when we talked about like debt and an obligation is that an obligation is something that's personal that's not transferable whereas debt is impersonal and it's transferable and you can count it. Um, and there's this whole literature that I've basically been drenched in uh, throughout the past two years that's influencing this book that is about that. And the reason why I think it's important is that I think it's one of those things that um, you look at it and, and it's sort of like a, a system of morality that can make people that would otherwise be like perfectly great people just rationalize things in a very ugly manner, uh, debt morality. Uh, I think it's very relevant because today um, it's particularly important to look at other societies, societies also outside the state, um, and how they've exercised political creativity and social, social change among themselves to so like inspire ourselves to sort of like tell us that, you know, if you want to make a better world, um, we can exercise that imagination to a certain degree and that we can get creative with the way we organize ourselves. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, yeah, we have this, especially being somebody who is, you know, um, yeah, I grew up, you know, Midwest America. So I have been, you know, one very specific sort of social, cultural uh, worldview uh, my entire life. And so just this whole idea that there are different ways to potentially operate as society is very foreign. Uh, so the whole idea of, yeah, so I think you said something interesting. So debt is something that can be tracked, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, we can track it. Whereas with obligation, it's definitely something that's how I feel mm -hmm. towards you. Uh, and I can't just like, so I'm like some sort of weird empath. I can't just like transfer my feeling over to somebody else and now you have assumed my debt you've now taken my mortgage all right mm -hmm. so i guess then in the aspects of the of the world so the salt states then how is that debt kind of how does that look like for them what's there have you kind of landed on a sort of a, i feel like their economy would be super important yeah to them so how, how does that translate then into the game uh, well, for the salt states, basically what you have is that, um, for example, the, the masks, sort of like the, the windfold use, which are made of wood, um, they sort of like tether their whole identity and stuff. Um, but in the salt states, those masks are made out of salt. Um, and salt is also the currency that they use. They basically establish this uh, currency, uh, which they use, which is also salt. Um, and so they've set a price for the life of every person that is born in the salt states. Um, when someone is born, essentially, they are born with the debt of what the cost of their mask was. Um, their name has a price. In fact, the length of their name uh, basically uh, tells you how much their, let's say, patrons have invested in them upon their birth. They can default on their name and they are oh counted by their names changing over time. It's extremely, it's like taking the, the, the debt concept and really going wild and, and creating a pretty sick society 
in a way. That is super dark. Like, but it's super dark. But then you say that. But then I think about like, like people over here, especially in the states with our screwed up healthcare system. Like people literally like being forced to go into debt, like just to get their medicine yeah. to live. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, that's it's pretty messed up there. It's uh, it's very dark. Um. And it's also, and I think that the most important thing about the salt states uh, is the the catch, sort of like the moral um, thing, because like you wouldn't want to put out like this horribly grim, dark sort of like uh, thing yeah. without having a justification. And the thing is that the patron saint of the salt states is the concept of uh, jubilee. They they see jubilee as the the ultimate goal, like. Every leader of the salt states should grant jubilee, should essentially end all debts. Um, so everyone generally is is basically focused on th- their faith is on jubilee, on the idea that their lord is going to be the one that brings jubilee and cancels all debts. The problem is that to cancel all debt, you have to own all debt. So there is this super high moral ideal that everyone is because of like a compassionate feeling trying to achieve the idea of canceling all debts and freeing everyone else from all debts but because everyone is fighting each other to try and rid everyone of debt um it sort of leads them to like this terrible conflict um if it's it's one of those things where like yeah in an ideal uh, world um, everyone would say, okay, let's have him over there own all debt and let him cancel that. But then how can we trust that when we cancel our debts here, he is not going to betray us? And how uh, can we guarantee that he's not going to betray us if we cancel our debts first or something like that? So it it's sort of like a pandemonium where everyone has the best intentions in mind, but because of how the system works, none of them eventually arrive to like a peaceful conclusion. Um, that's sort of like the debt morality kind of trap that is embodied in the salt states. Yeah, it's real. I think it's something that I think most players, I think they'll be able to relate to. I think uh, very much so. I mean, I'm just hearing you talk about it. I'm like, oh man, this is like, I, I can relate to this. So you kind of then I wanted to ask then how do the wind folk then are they more of are they more isolationist in their society, not necessarily aware of the 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 morality of the salt states, or is this something that they are just they're aware of it, but it is such a foreign concept to them that it doesn't even they, register with them. They are aware of it, and not only they're aware of it, they take action to avoid it happening um in fact there's like the really interesting thing also about like studying so much anthropology for this game and stuff like that is that i get to play with a lot of concepts that are very sort of like alien to like your normal urbanite person from the west or whatever um which are for example the concept of uh seasonal um systems which is essentially the fact that Windfolk, they all live in these small communities, uh, very communal life kind of thing throughout most of the year. But when the peak season comes and when the storm rises up, they also like conflux into like mountain halls in a particular place. And they basically go into a carnival where they simulate the salt state and they basically do a parody of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. And that's sort of like a, a parry that is made to sort of like remind of how this sort of thing is like truly undesirable. Like we can do it in this like very fun LARP kind of thing, yeah. uh, but it's not something that we really want to do seriously. Um, and it's yeah. an actual thing. There's so many societies, especially like societies out of state that um, have sort of like developed uh, mechanisms of this manner to avoid the sort of like the surge of states within them um and even in like in the western world uh even today maybe in some societies carnivals are still sort of like simulations of political creativity when maybe i don't know we say okay this day um all of the adults have to follow the kids rules and stuff like that 
and we sort of like play around with that to exercise a political imagination. And I think it's 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 sort of part of that. Interesting. I mean, there's so many different stories about how the 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 West has tried to encroach its ideas. I, I just it's, this just reminds me so much. It's just funny antidote of like the whole idea of like Henry Ford going down into the Amazon and like trying to create a utopian society and then the people there just completely not like not get they don't want his currency they're like 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 i remember there was a a old an old report that they had written that i read it was basically one of the foremen was just so shocked that the people down there they didn't want the money they just wanted somebody he said to fix their roof and it was just like i was like okay i so i'm kind of this is interesting i just it made me think about that Mm-hmm. So it's just two very different worlds mm-hmm. living pretty close together. So uh, is there is there is there violence in this game then? Oh yes, there, there's definitely violence. Okay. And there's a very, for example, there's a very strong distinction between the violence that um, a windfall could suffer through, like I don't know, like an animal lashing out, or like through like crossing a rapid and, and getting caught in like the the current. And the violence that they get from the salt states, because what's important is the feeling behind it. Um, like the violence from nature is, is sort of like indiscriminate and, and it's sort of like, you know, uh, there's no real feeling behind. But the salt states, they're they're out to get these people and they have very strong feelings uh, for them. They, they believe windfolk are inferior beings that should be like taken as captives or something. So the violence is very different, um, whereas with like uh, if you get harmed from like nature or something you take points of your constitution and etc you lose zephyr tokens and stuff um if you sort of like find yourself at the end of like the 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 sort of like assault states freelancer or something like that there's a system by which your character sheet gets hurt essentially um okay uh, for example, if if you if, if like it lashes at you and you get caught in there, you drop two tokens and you see the line they intersect and you slice your character sheet through that. Um, if you get shot at, uh, you basically let a few tokens fall uh, tokens fall on your character sheet and you puncture the character sheet. Um, and there's one or two ways to defend from that, but pretty much you want to avoid violence with the salt states like violence with nature that's going to happen it's very uh, yeah it's 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 a thing but violence with the salt states is generally what the windfolk want to avoid um and it sort of responds to the fact that for a big chunk of history one of the most common if not the most common response to violence is just to flee <laughs> It's yeah. uh, it's so common, and it's and it's generally like even in in marching armies, it's so like the number one cause of like casualties is like people just leaving and refusing yeah. to hurt other human beings and stuff like that. And I wanted to sort of like reflect that with that. Yeah, it's definitely different. I think because then you go into the game with the mindset. I mean, because with most games, you're kind of we're so used to this whole the the design idea of like yes something is against me so i can be against it Mm -hmm. so i think having this very clear like i think it will then inform the game like you're going into it the players telling the players yeah this is we don't we can we don't attack them that's not kind of what the goal of this is we Mm -hmm. we run away you know we fight with nature Mm -hmm. some Okay, interesting. So I guess one of the other questions I really had for you was, uh, you've been you've been working on this game for I, maybe not working on the game for a long time, but I feel like it's been in your head for a long time. Yeah, because it is the the logo for your company all right and you you've you've i was always like when nipperu i think I, i've told the story before where so i got into games with dnd 5e because that was i had no idea what these things were my comic book shop just told me i may like this and so i picked it up and then your game was i wasn't on twitter at early on i was just on facebook all right and so your nipperu was the first indie game that I played, all right? And it was one of those, I was like, oh, okay, this is what I act, this is what I really want to do. So I kind of shifted over my focus over there. 
and but you always had this 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 logo and then one day you shared some art on twitter i was like what is this thing like so how can you talk about like the the genesis of zephyr like where did this where did this come from it's very old and and it's it's, okay. it's a great thing that you pick up uh, the theme because the the logo is like a the, the face of like a windfolk um, yeah it's very old. It's um, it's one of those things that started with, uh, with the design of of the of the Windfolk. Basically, I wanted to have a game in which the character sheet was sort of like this mask, and the idea was that you were going to like write on this mask, and there was going to be like a very big theme of sacrifice where you would tear out chunks of your mask to uh, harness some power or something. Um, but the mask itself was like sort of like the big kicker to it all, that shape. Um, and I had that idea. That idea, of course, mutated a lot and it gained all of like yeah. the substance and stuff. But it was it was kind of not like what happened with Nibiru where like uh, it started off from the theme of memory. It started from that shape and... Um, I did want it to do something with feelings, but that was kind of it. <laughs> gotcha. So you you just had this because how old is like Nipper has been around for a while now, right? Yeah, it's it's been probably th- since two thousand nineteen. Two thousand Nipper has been around since two thousand seventeen, more or less two thousand sixteen, I think. Um, with a quick start and stuff like that, the company logo was probably around 2017 more or less yeah gotcha so is this so yeah so this is going back were you still in argentina then no that was uh i was in i was in uh, i was in i was in london i arrived london in 2015 um okay and i started working on nibiru uh on at the end of 2015 more or less so yeah Gotcha. Yeah, it's just funny I, i was just thinking about this because it's like i with this logo it's just I feel like I've been waiting for this game for <laughs> forever. Like, and then it's it's finally coming. So, all right, no, I was just that was just I was just very curious about the the logo and everything. Mm-hmm. So, but kind of still talking about like your your history with this game. Then uh, you've been pretty open on social media about your art process. All right, mm-hmm. um, you started early on. You know, that's why t- I was kind of joking about you kind of just throwing out random art pieces on Twitter for like the last several years and I, nobody really we, we're not really knowing like what is what is this so but the as we get closer to the game those have increased and you've talked about your art process so you've been developing this game for a while you've been drawing for four to five hours a day so what is that talk to us about the journey of you learning your your art and drawing what's that what that look like from day one to now Oh my god, that's uh, that's like um, so that was the biggest thing, and I think it's it's one of like the, the the big things with Zephyr, which is that most of what I've drawn over the last two three years has been for Zephyr. So it's it's been pretty much my entire journey as an illustrator from start to finish. Um, so I started around 2018, 2019. Um, and I always started uh, with a friend that's basically my mentor. Uh, Valeria is, is basically uh, my best friend, along with my other best friend, let's say. Best friends from Argentina, essentially. Um, okay. And they basically told me uh, how to draw. <laughs> they, they taught me how to draw. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. basically, I around that year, 2019, I bought... Uh, the Surface, which is the computer that I use, which is also a tablet, and that's why I wanted it. I wanted it to to be able to like draw on top, and I started drawing, and I sort of never stopped. And I think it's it's become one of those things that like it's the one part of the artistic process that I can do to no end. Um, I it, it does give me the same sort of like feeling of like wanderlust that I get from like designing uh, games, but it gives it to me in in a very consistent sort of like way. Like game design, like you can think about mechanics and sort of like see, okay, this doesn't work, this this works, this maybe doesn't work. Every once in a while, you hit in like a, a gem, but it's it, with drawing, it's one of those things where like every 
piece that I finish, I'm like, wow, this is so cool. I got to show it around. <laughs> yeah, it's very cool. I'm, I, I really, am. I'm so impressed with this art. Uh, it is, it's, it's good. I, I we kind of talk about this, like the whole idea, the trap that a lot of people get into with games is that they have to have like really good art nowadays. Uh, and this is, I mean. This is good art, and I'm glad yeah. that you could do it yourself now. I'm sure that's saving you some money. So, yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess really then is you've been drawing this stuff for a long time. Is the and it's changed? I mean, you're. I mean, I'm not an artist, but I can recognize like, oh, this stuff that Fed just put out last week is like really good. All right. So, and not that your old stuff was bad. All right, don't get me wrong, but there's just a difference. There's a difference here. So, is the are you including like everything in this book, like new stuff, mm. old stuff? Are we going to get a mix? Yes, I am including everything. And the reason why I'm including everything is that, uh, first of all, I don't think most people are going to realize <laughs> the difference between like the okay, old stuff yeah. and the new. And especially, I think it's, it's one of those things that when uh, in the older times, um, I had this thing where like, I didn't know, of course, anywhere near as much as I know now about like illustration. But the thing is that I was super hype, like beyond uh, belief. So I would spend like tens of hours in each piece. Um, like, and, and, and I would spend like, I don't know, like weeks on a, on a piece working like a lot of hours per day. Um, and I would cover a lot of uh, my imperfections through just like pouring detail into the pieces. So mm. I would just detail like like a mad person. Um, and it would come out really cool. Um, so a lot of imperfections you wouldn't notice because they were covered in detail. Uh, whereas now I can be more chill um, and still get a, like a good art piece or, or like a nice illustration out. But back then, I, I think that sort of thing happened a lot. Um, uh, some of my most detailed pieces are like the oldest pieces that I have. It's interesting. I could definitely like I see like your some of the more recent stuff that you've posted very much um, simpler yeah you're doing a lot of stuff with with which with light and shadow which we've kind of talked about before which mm -hmm. i kind of i really like when i see artists do that mm -hmm. where it doesn't look like everything's kind of washed out it's just there's i don't know it's yeah. just me talking <laughs> so i know it's i i really like it it's cool uh also the you've started sharing some like layout picks and stuff i'm always a fan of games that don't follow like traditional layout structures so, you know, you just got some negative space over here and some yeah. words over there. So, okay, so I dig it. So, but I guess the big question is, I mean, we talked about how this great game, different themes you were kind of talking about, but can you talk, all right, so I, I hate dating podcasts, but this is January of 2022. All right, so uh, when are you thinking about, yes, you're still finishing up Xanadu stuff and you're working on all of that. Mm -hmm. um, super excited for that. But when are we, when are we going to get, Zephyr. Uh, you're going to get a crowdfunding campaign on the second half of this year. Um, okay. And most likely 2023 is going to be sort of like the, the release of the game. Okay. Uh, so then the you shared a ton of content about Zephyr. So, I mean, I'm almost, I'm envisioning a book similar to Nibiru and you've kind of talked about the whole idea of like putting an indie game in a traditional RPG kind of hardback format with really good art. Um, so is that similar to what we're going to see with yes. Zephyr then? Yeah, that's okay. the idea. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. And are we going to get like super cool, like ceramic tokens as a add on on? <laughs> we're going to get tokens as an add on. The, the okay. thing with tokens is, uh, I'm not going to go like super wild, but the tokens that I got look super cool. Um, I think I have a couple of like images uh, posted about them. Um, and the, the ideal thing is to make them like very cheap because uh, they are very cheap. Okay. Uh, and the idea is, is for them to be like super accessible because they're not dice. They're not something that like anyone is going to have uh, lying around. So um, yeah, yeah, that's that's sort of like the goal to make them as cheap as possible. 
Uh, okay, gotcha. So you're not going to pull a fantasy flight on us and no, make like, yeah. Okay, all right. <laughs> no, I would expect nothing less. Okay, so all right, uh, that's super cool. I mean, I'm I'm very excited for this game. I hope that uh, listeners go check out what Fed's doing. Uh, I mean, even if you're you you don't want to wait for this game, you can get Nibiru mm-hmm. right now. I love this game. I love Nibiru. All right. So uh, go check that out. So, Fed, where can people find you then on social media and check out your games? Uh, you can find uh, my stuff at Oracana Media, uh, which is at Oracana1 uh, in Twitter. Uh, we have the Oracana uh, Facebook page. And if you go to oracana.com, uh, basically that's the place to be. Uh, like, get into the mailing list and you're going to receive an email when that releases so yeah okay super cool i mean we'll have all of those uh details in our show notes Mm -hmm. then other than that uh yeah thanks for coming on and talking about the game thanks for having me it's a pleasure like always (laughs) uh no problem all right folks uh definitely go check out uh check out zephyr uh and everything else fed's doing and don't forget folks uh if you're having fun you're doing it right all right thanks everyone thanks for listening to the rpg academy podcast we do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors welcoming more people into this community all of our website content will always be free to use and utilize but there are expenses related to the show And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy. Or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook, or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can, and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. The music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.